My Year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 12. Christmas and New Year were a busy time. Not busy with action, but with multiple disappointment. Naveen suggested meeting up, but didn't really want to come all the way to my place. I checked. It was eight minutes on the Northern Line. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. He'd like to, but he was tired. His shifts were exhausting. Then he discovered there was no public transport. I offered to collect him and drive him home. No, he said he was worried we couldn't be spontaneous. Couldn't get drunk, I suppose he meant. Someone called Stefano said he was keen, but tired. He'd also let me down a few weeks ago. How about another day? Or maybe if he had a coffee he'd wake up. No, he was still tired. Oh, fuck it, I'll come, he said, as if his decision was a great treat for me. I said if he'd had a better offer that was okay. I'm nothing if not realistic. I finished work at 7.30. We'd arranged to meet at 8 o'clock. I got home, set up the table and prepared the oils and towels, a run-of-the-mill drill by now. Then I saw his message. I'm too knackered to come. I texted, OK, let's forget it. He asked if I was available at the weekend. Yes, I said, but not for you. You've messed me around too many times already, and there are plenty of other guys grateful for a free professional massage who will make an arrangement and keep to it. Goodbye. As I deleted Stefano, Naveen sent a message to ask when I'd next be free. What is it with these men? Aaron was a nice young man in Wandsworth. He seemed witty and friendly and flirty. He said he was straight and wanted to explore the male body and jump right into it. Then the conversation stopped and he disappeared. Another one. Bruno was Portuguese. We had a very jolly chat for a while, about nothing much, coffee, drinks, veggie food, massage therapy. On the point of fixing a day to meet, he went silent. Gone. Jordan was only twenty, but said he was a film producer. Really? I mean, really? He said he was into older men, well, obviously, as he was talking to me. Some cheerful banter, and then he exits without a farewell. The laddie vanishes. It was the end of the year, that sluggish backwater between two forced celebrations. I'm told there'll be a naked party on New Year's Eve. About twenty-five guys, and one of them, a man called Dieter, will be bringing his mother, who's in town. They're a German naturist family, so it's the norm for them. I'm full of admiration for the individuals concerned, but no, I don't think I'll be going to that. To Joe Orton for me, to Freud, to Oedipus. But I was in Paris briefly. From the photos on his profile, Paris was a pleasant young man. In fact, he turned out to be better looking than his pictures, which isn't usually the case. Better looking, but chubbier. Cypriot, mixed race. It was close to 8pm when he arrived, and he said he had to leave by 9.15. As we had a quick cup of tea, he was fidgety and talked a lot. I listened and looked at him, checking myself. No, there was no spark of attraction. He had a shower and stayed in the bathroom for a long time, even though the minutes were ticking away. I gave the massage, cutting out some moves to save time. He had nice olive skin, but lay in silence as if dead, not a murmur or twitch. When I asked if he was okay, he gave a non-committal, back, legs, bum. I enjoyed pressing my palms into his glutes, as always. 
then scalp, arms, chest, tummy, feet, and cock. He didn't seem keen on doing much to me. Lick my ass, he said. Ah, Paris, so romantic. Well, if I must. Play with my nipples. Okie dokie. Fine cock, good size. I'd had a blue pill, so I was into it biologically. He didn't want to kiss and only sucked me for a short time. I suggested we transfer to the bed, but he said, No, the table's fine. I asked if he wanted to be fucked. No. Uh, yes. Uh, no. Okay. Although, do you have a condom? I did, so it was a yes. And I tried. He was very specific about the way he wanted to lie, to stand, to squat, to sit. I felt as if we were rehearsing complex choreography or fight moves. He got me inside him briefly, but he wasn't comfortable. When I was trying to fuck him, he had his phone in front of him. Why? Watching porn? Reading messages? Checking the time? Perhaps seeing what the news was, or ordering a pizza on Deliveroo? I asked him if he wanted to come. No. Look, I have to go, but will you take some pictures? Sure. Of my ass. Righty-ho. He bent over the table and spread his cheeks. I made encouraging noises, as if it was the most ordinary thing, holiday snaps on the beach. Pucker up, say cheese. Although it looked more like choose. He had another shower. Again he seemed to linger, in contrast to his stated need to depart. I called through the door. Paris, are you okay? Yeah. We shared the briefest hug, and I pecked him on the cheek before he went. Only later did I see that he had dismantled the showerhead and destroyed the cradle that fixed it to the wall. There were bits of plastic and metal all over the bath. No apology or explanation. I texted him to say I hope he'd got home safely and had a good time. Yeah. And yeah. He wondered if next time Angelo might be available for a forehand massage. No, I don't think there'll be another time, will there? I won't be in Paris again. I woke on December the 31st struggling with flu-like symptoms. Not polaxing, but coughing and sweating and aching and exhausted and hot and cold at the same time. Struggling psychologically too with the imminent visit to the clinic for a colonoscopy. This time next week I'd know more, such as whether the 3-4% to who were discovered to have cancer included me. I found I'd had several missed calls from Hakim in the night. We texted. He had had anxiety and a panicky feeling. Poor thing. He was really rather fragile, not the cool, sophisticated chap I'd expected from his photos. He was upstaged by his own outrageous hair. Hakim said he was unwell and needed to see a doctor. I gave him some thoughts, doing research from my own sickbed, where I was sweating and spluttering. I suggested that if he was really ill, he should get to a hospital. There wouldn't be one open today. The will? I can't afford to go. It won't cost you anything. But I'm not from an EU country. It's okay, Hakim. You'll be looked after. We have a national health service. This was back in 2018, when we still did. But if I need treatment, I can't pay for drugs. Listen, Hakim. I did feel just a tiny bit better, and it sounded as if he was worse than me. Wanting to be the decent guy, I said I could meet him at the hospital, perhaps foolishly, but it was the right thing to do. 
I found out where the best place to get him treatment was and explained to him. The Gaze Hospital, he said, amazed. A special place for us. No, I said, Guy's Hospital, Guy's and St. Thomas's. I showered and dressed, put a blue pill and a toothbrush in my pocket, you never know, and set off. There he was at the agreed place, tall and slender and splendid, his hair disappointingly tied back. I escorted him to the walk-in clinic. I helped him fill in some forms about his symptoms, his address, and so on, and then we waited in the reception area with other stragglers and strays. There was something cosy in our mutual sniffling and shivering. We chatted and laughed about nonsense. There was a lot of physical contact, and at one point he nodded off his head on my shoulder. I felt close to him and protective. I felt warm, although that could have been the fever. Finally we were seen by a doctor. He was impersonal, thorough but desiccated and perfunctory, no bedside manner. That was okay. I could provide that. I translated a few words into French for Hakim, but it was really my reassurance and physical presence he needed. He got a prescription for antibiotics, and we went to the pharmacy. He was still expecting the sort of treatment he'd get in Morocco, where the drugs would be prohibitively expensive. I said I was happy to pay, but when he was asked for six pounds, he laughed at the amount and refused my offer. I felt so pleased for Hakim, and so incredibly proud of the NHS. We walked to Borough Market, and I bought him a bag of lychees instead. Not as good for flu, but still therapeutic. We passed a restaurant I'd been to a couple of times before, and I suggested a meal. My own words surprised me. I didn't realise I was up to so much. We were both coughing still. At the next table, a man got onto one knee and proposed to his female companion. She grabbed her phone to film everything, barely making eye contact. It was so wrong. I half expected him to get up and say, Oh, forget it. Seeing me watching, she belittled the event, saying, <laughs> We've known each other for twenty years anyway. <laughs> Poor man. When the bill came, Hakim offered to split it, but I insisted on paying. My city, my treat. You can buy me dinner in Casablanca. We both still felt very rough. He had messages from other friends. I suggested we could have a sleep and then go to Primrose Hill to watch the fireworks, but I wasn't enthusiastic. Eventually he said he'd go to his friend's house to relax. I've no idea about the nature of that friendship. It was not for me to know. I may have been playing a protective role, but I was well aware that these men had multiple and overlapping partners for fun. And so we parted at London Bridge. I stroked his face a few times and told him he was a lovely man. I said he should let me know if he fancied another cuddle. He said, I leave London in two days. Oh dear. Only the second man I fucked since Oliver left five years ago. Nathan and Hakim. I don't think I can count Paris. I was only in the bon lieu of Paris, as it were, the outskirts, and that very briefly. Oh dear, oh dear. So much for my attempts to be a bit of a slut. It was time to up the stakes, and I knew exactly the way to do that. From my diary. December the 31st. Three years to the day since the accident. One thousand and ninety-five days since everything changed. As people say, it feels a long way in the past and always terrifyingly present. 
like last night watching an animated Tintin film, there was a scene when he was chasing a thief through the streets and had to dash across the road between vehicles. I gasped aloud and looked away, but even so the image of my own experience three years ago was there in my head, as clear as ever. I didn't allow it to stay, refusing to let it take root. Is that refusal a version of my friend Thora's, block it, darling, just block it? Perhaps. I could choose to allow it in in all its gory detail, but my overriding concern is, is it helpful for me? In therapy may be, but at work, with friends, watching a film, no. I still need the bubble wrap to cushion my hidden wounds from harm. I have no profound words about trauma and recovery, only my own story to tell, a story of tragedy and survival, of pain, shock, despair, grief, loss, regret, confusion. No anger towards the man who died, or the bus driver who might have escorted him across the road, or the other driver who flashed me. Absolutely not. Anger is no part of my response. Only gratitude to all the people from the first to come to me, Tony from the car behind, through the professional services and friends and strangers and all those who still support and try to understand. Understand what? How it's affected me? Who I am now? Because I'm not the person I used to be. On one of those early days when I ventured outside my flat for the first time, was I going to see Renner, wishing I'd said, I can't travel to you, it's too much? I stood on the escalator going down at Holborn and saw all those faces coming up on two escalators. I was certain they were all staring at me, with fixed, accusing expressions, mouthing, You're the man who... They knew. They all knew. I hid my face behind a scarf and pulled down my hat. No, no, I'm not that person. Don't define me in that way. And now, today... Three years later, I think I have to say, admit, that I am. I am the man who, the man who killed another man. And let's not forget who is the true victim here. He lost his life. I lost an old life, and I'm trying to create a new one. These are chances I have which he doesn't. I will never forget that. So I am the man who... Of course, of course, I would do anything to go back, and with a tiny tweak of timing, decision or trajectory, create a different outcome, one in which I wasn't traumatised and he was alive. We don't have that luxury. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Of all the events in my life, I've often felt, this is the hardest yet, it feels impossible to bear. From childhood disappointment that sparked a rage, teenage depression, failing academically, boyfriend issues with Philip, being sacked at a radio station, dad's death, mum's death, Oliver leaving me, each one a bigger crisis than before, worse than anything I'd previously survived, threatening to demolish and defeat me. How could I find the resources to survive? And then... Three years ago today, the accident... Nothing, no pain or trauma or loss could prepare anyone for that. The horror of being responsible for a man's death. Responsible? Guilty? Of what? Nothing. I can't blame myself. I don't blame him. We both made our choices and behaved as we felt was appropriate and safe. And it wasn't. We would both go back and do things differently, what would I change of my own choices, though, other than leave the café sooner, not go out at all? Nobody has, to my face, laid blame at my door. The opposite. 
they've tried to take it away. Don't blame yourself. I don't, but I still have the grief and this changed life, the confusion of never being able to understand it, of being the man who. Now this is the worst. But the worst is not, so long as we can say this is the worst. Lear again, Edgar. So now I wonder. The colonoscopy next week. Billy had stomach cancer. Am I about to get news that is truly worse than even the worst I've experienced so far? I've run through scenarios in my head, and even knowing the three to four percent statistics, the imagined scenes aren't of me being told there's nothing to worry about. It's the worst I'm braced for. The worst that I'm expecting. The preparation for the colonoscopy wasn't as grim as people had warned, just drinking large quantities of a disgusting yellow liquid for 36 hours and waiting for it to flush me out, which it sure did, most efficiently and spectacularly, not so much the bottom falling out of my world as vice versa. I went to the hospital with the sense of wanting to reassure the staff that they didn't need to be nervous about breaking the news to me. Mr. Izard, you do have cancer of the bowel. You'll need surgery, followed by chemotherapy. There would be figures about survival rates and upbeat messages about the practical steps. All very common sense, very NHS. I would weep just a little, but there would be no shock, no why-me moment. Why not me? It's a random business after all, who lives, who dies, who's healthy, who's unlucky. So tell me the facts and let's get on with the treatment. The worst part of the appointment was the fact that the nurse couldn't find a decent vein for her injection to sedate me. She stabbed and dug around in my right arm and then gave up and moved to the left, where she was more successful and whacked in the smack, at which point I began to sweat and feel dizzy. I've only fainted once before in my life, and that was also in a hospital, triggering a massive over-response and keeping me in a bed for hours, until the consultant came to see me, changed my anti-malarial drugs to what he called the middle-class one, and as he left, said, Oh, by the way, I've heard you on the radio, and I think you're jolly good, which was better than any medication. Because I was about to keel over from my chair onto the floor, the vein nurse helped me to stagger to a bed where I flopped pathetically, wondering if I was going to throw up. She fitted a contraption over my face with tubes for each nostril so I could breathe oxygen. This is ridiculous, I thought, and almost said, We shouldn't be faffing about with needles and masks. I'm here to be told I have bowel cancer. I waited for what seemed ages, with nurses appearing and peering around the curtains every few minutes to check my pulse, my blood pressure, and my mood. How are you feeling now? I felt sick and nauseous and afraid. Much better, I said. Eventually, a cute young man called Jim came to my bedside and told me he'd be performing the procedure. He had a lot of tattoos up each arm, and either because his bedside manner was so relaxing or because the sedative was taking effect, I heard myself mildly flirting with him. "'Your tats are very impressive,' I told him. "'What's that one?' He explained what some of them were. "'They say you never have just one. True in your case.' Mm, "'But I've stopped now. How come? My wife says I can't waste money on any more. Not now there are school fees and uniforms to pay for.' "'Right.' 
Hmm, straight. She sounds very sensible. Yeah, he pulled a face, meaning, unfortunately. He took some details and asked if I could walk. I said I could. We strolled along the corridor like a couple of colleagues, apart from me wearing an open gown with my ass hanging out. The ass Jim was about to probe. I said, I have a good joke, which you may already have heard, but if not, you may like it. As a gay man, I can tell it. In other words, it assumes that some gay men like receiving anal sex, which they do, although I don't. But if a straight man told it, the same assumption would be offensive. All right. Jim sounded a bit perplexed, not hearing my inner dialogue. I said, I have to tell you now before the drugs take effect or I might not get to the punchline. Go on then. Well, a gay man goes to see his doctor about a pain in the bum. His GP is a crusty old chap with a stern expression. He asks what the problem is, the patient explains about the pain, and the doctor says he should drop his trousers and bend over. So he does. Where exactly is the problem? asks the crusty doctor, leaning in closely to examine the man's ass. Just, he says, reaching back to part his buttocks, in the middle, the actual crack, there, right at the entrance. Entrance? the doctor repeats, horrified and staggering back. The entrance? I think you mean the exit. Jim had the manners to laugh. You must have heard it before. No? Well, have it. It's yours. I hope your colleagues enjoy it. I lay on the bed, had the cannula in my arm connected to a drip, and Jim carried out the procedure. As a man for whom it's definitely an exit, I was expecting to find this part uncomfortable, but the sedation relaxed me both physically and psychologically, and I watched the orange blobs on the screen near my head with fascination. They reminded me of the gobbets of oil floating up and down in a lava lamp. I felt I might be at a seventies-themed party, and half expected to be offered Lambrusco with cheese and pineapple on a stick. Jim said, This next part might be a little bit uncomfortable. All right, I shrugged. But it wasn't. He took some biopsies, and I could see the mouth of the instrument chomping morsels out of my intestine. But I felt nothing. Jim explained there were no pain receptors in the gut. I never knew that, I said. That's really interesting. Some men, and some women, enjoy anal sex, so I assume there are pleasure receptors. It felt totally fine to have this conversation. I mean, there's a handsome young man feeding a five-foot tube up my bum. There's no need for coyness. There are stretch receptors, he said. In fact, as he pushed and pulled and manipulated, I felt completely relaxed. I began to get very used to the sensation inside me, and and, and even, oh my God, I even found it quite pleasant. It was enjoyable. Could I become someone who likes having his stretch receptors engaged? Jim talked me through what he was finding, and there were only calm words of comfort, sounds of succour. Good, good, fine, yes, yes, yes. There's nothing here to worry about. No sign of anything nasty. In fact, it all looks great. Lovely. Well, thank you, Jim, I said coquettishly, as if he was saying my haircut suited me, or he liked my new shirt. You're too kind, I added with a demure flutter of my eyelids, as demure as I could muster on my side in an opened-arsed gown and a hose up my anus. I wondered if I was a typical patient. At some point I mentioned the skin tags, explained that I'd got them from being... I don't like to say raped from non-consensual sex, and how I've always hated them, been embarrassed by them from the age of twenty-one. 
He said, Well, we can deal with those. Set things going to remove them. We'll put it in the report so they can be taken care of. I felt so grateful. After all these years, could I begin to like that part of my body? So, nothing nasty. I'm in the 96 to 97 percent. No bowel cancer. I have a gorgeous colon and will henceforth be farting sparkles and shitting glitter. Later that evening, a thought flashed across my mind like lightning. I should ring Mum and tell her the good news. She'll be waiting to hear. Funny, really, how the brain does that. Mum died in 2003. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. The music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a protocol production. <laughs>